Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Sports Professor Riccaro, and we are keeping score. In one of the biggest months ever in the calendar year, NBA, NHL, Finals, French Open, Tennis, U.S. Open, Golf, Women's World Cup, and much, much more. So let's get right to it. First, the deal-making issues of the week, three to one. Number three, Visa invests in women's soccer on the eve of the FIFA Women's World Cup. It would partner with men's and women's U.S. national teams. So at least 50% of the investment would fund the U.S. women's national team and women's soccer programs and surrounding marketing efforts. The deal sees Visa become the presenting sponsor of the She Believes Cup, an annual four-team international invitational tournament in the U.S. And additionally, a new U.S. marketing campaign from Visa will feature many World Cup members and U.S. World Cup uh, team uh, co-captain Megan Rapino joins Visa. Visa's roster of athletes and the financial services brand will be the first brand partner of the Player of the Match Award and the FIFA Women's World Cup. And after U.S. women's soccer players sued U.S. soccer over gender inequality in uh, pay this March, Visa is providing a helping hand for the three-time women's champions U.S. Women's World Cup. It will be a big deal becoming even bigger. That's number three. Number two. Stanley Cup Finals, strong viewership. NBC Sports has the Bruins and St. Louis Blues Game 1 matchup, the most, most watched Stanley Cup game in years. An audience delivery of 5.38 million viewers. It was the third most watched Game 1 since NBC began pro- pro- broadcasting the Stanley Cup Finals in 2006 and even beat out the ever-popular Bachelorette. The series should draw consistently high numbers, considering the Cinderella story Blues taking on the behemoth Bruins, who posted 49 regular season wins and the favorite for betters to take the cup. That's number two. Number one, Kevin Durant may not play, unsure status, and it's wrecking sportsbook havoc during the NBA Finals. The Warriors superstar has been sidelined by a calf injury, making him questionable to appear at any point in this series. The series line at William Hill Sportsbooks is roughly the consensus market price, but it doesn't mean it's the right price due to the unknown status of Durant's injury. And after factoring the money lines attached to each game, Golden State was placed at the minus 275 favorite. And according to the New York Post, the first significant bet last week was 5000 bucks on the Warriors, pushing the price to minus 300 which equated to about a 73% chance of winning. If things were normal and Durant was at full strength, the Superbook odds maker Jeff Sherman said the Warriors would be at least minus 500 series favorites and an 8.5 point home favorite. Notably, Golden State is 31-1 in the past 32 games when Durant was out and Curry played, but we don't solve this in the past, we solve it in the future. The NBA championship, pretty interesting this year, and the Golden State Warriors heading for what might be an unequivocal dynasty. Well, that's deals three to one, and our timely guest this week is an NBA dynasty in and of himself, certainly an NBA legend and icon. 
Pat Williams' current title is the senior vice president of the Orlando Magic, but he began in minor league baseball as a player with the Miami Marlins in 1962. Ran the Bulls, ran the Hawks for a little while, but in 83, he led the Sixers to an NBA championship, the uh, uh, Julius Irving team with a whole bunch of supporting cast. He left in 86 to create the Orlando Magic and am honored to have known him for years when we were struggling in Miami to put the Miami Heat together. And he successfully put the Orlando Magic together at the same time Minnesota and Charlotte and Miami and Orlando came into the league. 23 playoffs, five NBA finals, 19 former players have become head coaches. Her certainly understands the game. Off the court is 18 children, 14 adopted from four nations between 1983 and 93. Pat Williams, an incredible story both on and off the court. Here he is now. Welcome back to Power Sports. Rick Harrow, just pleased, humbled, honored to be with a uh, mentor, personal friend, father of basketball in Orlando, father of sports in many ways. We'll talk about the 87 Orlando Magic in a minute. Pat Williams, co-founder of the Magic. Thank you very much for all oh, Rick. This. Welcome <coughs> to our building. Welcome to Orlando. Thank Good you. to see you. Good to see you, too. So you grew up in Philly and an insider <coughs> with the Phillies, had enough information with the Phillies and kind of started the process for... Uh, your knowledge of sports uh, with the Phillies, around the Phillies. Tell that story. Talk about how you got involved in that. Well, Rick, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, played ball through high school, went to Wake Forest on a baseball scholarship and caught for the Deacons for four years. In June of 1962, I had graduated and I wanted to get into baseball. Uh, Fortunately, I was a friend of the owner of the Phillies, Bob Carpenter. Uh, we met. Uh, he offered a $500 bonus to sign, $400 a month. I was absolutely ecstatic. And he said, you're going to Miami, uh, which was then La Phillies Farm right. Club. And his last words to me were, keep your eyes and ears open on and off the field. Well, I didn't fully understand, but later I found out that the scout for the Phillies in North Carolina, Wes Livengood, had turned in reports on me as a ball player, but he also said in that report, has a future in the front office. So anyway, I ended up in Miami for the 62 season, 63. Uh, The GM of the club was a fellow named Bill Durney, and he was a wonderful, wonderful mentor, taught me the ropes of minor league baseball, And that led to the opportunity to go to Spartanburg, South Carolina, which was then a Phillies farm club. And I was there for four years, uh, which laid the foundation uh, for everything that's happened ever since. So, Rick, my goals were all in baseball. You know, I uh, played a little bit, played enough baseball to get a feel for it. And I wanted to uh, get to a major league team and end up being a GM of a big league ball club. But something happened. Well, along the way. And we'll talk about what happened, but it is ironic that one of our benefactors and good friends of the show is Cal Ripken. And so yet another person kind of planted the seed in Miami for baseball, just like Cal did, ironically, as well. Uh, talk about Bill Veck. I understand he was one of your mentors. What did, what did Bill Peck, Beck teach you about sports, life, and promotion? Well, it's interesting because in that summer, 
1962, uh, there was an off day in that season, and I was visiting around, went to Burdine's bookstore, <laughs> yeah. uh, department store. You yeah. remember Burdine's? Uh-huh. <laughs> We're dating ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. I ended yeah. up in the book department, <clears throat> and there on the front table was this book called Vec is in Wreck. And this picture of Bill Vec on the front cover, I bought it. <clears throat> it was pre-signed by him, amazingly. $3.95, 400-page book. That would cost you 35 bucks today. Yeah. But I bought it and was absolutely absorbed as Bill Vec shared his story. And he made reference numbers of times to Bill Durney uh, in St. Louis, who was the GM of this team I was with with Miami. So when the season ended, I asked Bill Durney if he could help me uh, reach and get to see Bill Vec in his home in Eastern Maryland. I lived in Wilmington, yeah. Delaware, not that far away. And that all came about, and I went to see Bill Vec, cold turkey, and uh, hoped just to shake hands. And about six hours later, I left. And my life had been really transformed by this remarkable man. Uh, I stayed in touch with him. He was a mentor. Uh, he was a friend. He was a ally, you know, for 25 years. And uh, what did I learn? Well, many things. I wrote a book a few years ago, Rick, called Marketing Your Dreams, uh, Life Lessons I Learned from Bill Veck. One of them was read, read, read. Bill Veck was a voracious reader. Secondly, uh, it's, it's good to have fun at the old ballpark. You can't beat fun. Uh, don't sell the games on the one and loss column. Too risky, but you can guarantee fun. Uh, I also learned uh, from him in uh, the importance of public speaking. Uh, that's really the main way that Bill sold his teams yeah. out in front of people. Well, and words to live by today, very clearly. So, and 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 it, it's all as relevant in all sports. So you're making a transition, and you made it successfully. Obviously, reflect back on eighty on on, on eighty three with the Sixers. They win the NBA championship. And so talk a little bit about that process and, and how you put that group together. Tell that story. Well, that was a, a, an interesting process because we, uh, little by little, I, I came to the Sixers in the, uh, in the heels of that 9 and 73 disaster, yeah. uh, which will always be remembered. Right. And uh, we had to really build from scratch. Uh, we started uh, drafting Daryl Dawkins out of high school, drafted Lloyd Free, uh, lured George McGinnis over from yeah. the other league, lured Caldwell Jones over from the other league. Yeah. Uh, we then made that huge deal, six million dollar deal to acquire Julius Irving. Six million. Um, yeah. We then had two important draft picks that worked, Maurice Cheeks and Andrew Tony. That gave us our guard line. We traded George McGinnis to Denver for Bobby Jones, uh, which gave us that wonderful multi-piece player. And then uh, the enormous acquisition of Moses Malone, a $13 million deal, which at that time uh, was absolutely unprecedented. So suddenly we had our franchise, Moses in the middle, Bobby Jones up front, coming off the bench with Julius, Cheeks and Tony, the guard line, and we had a team that could play with everybody, and they did. Had a marvelous season, and then 
uh, met the Lakers, who had kept knocking us out of the playoffs yeah. every year, it seemed. Right. And we finally got our revenge and swept them, and uh, we had our title. An incredible title that people in Philadelphia will never forget, notwithstanding the Eagles last year, but we'll never forget. So four years later, the magic is awarded in a for a building just a few feet from, uh, yards from here, but it's the end of a story, beginning of another one, but that doesn't happen overnight. So tell a little bit about the story of bringing the magic to Orlando. Well, I'd been in uh, Philly as the GM for 12 years, mm-hmm. but I was getting restless. Uh, I needed a new challenge. The ultimate challenge in pro sports, I think, Rick, is to start a team up from scratch, an expansion team. I had met some business leaders uh, here in Orlando, and uh, they kept pursuing me to come on down here and head this up. And finally, I had to make a decision, leave my home area, leave the Sixers, leave a young Charles Barkley, et cetera, Mm -hmm. and come down here cold turkey and see if we could rally this community and then sell the NBA, A, on expanding, and B, putting a franchise here in Central Florida in 1986-87. And, Rick, uh, this community wasn't much to look at then. It was still quite a small southern town. Anyway, I took the risk, uh, spent, I don't know, the better part of six months uh, speaking and yelling and screaming and jumping up and down in the community, and then... Uh, keeping the NBA posted. Anyway, long story short, in April of 1987, uh, the league was looking at four cities that were trying to knock their way in. Miami, Orlando, Charlotte, and Minneapolis. And uh, nobody really got a real sense on this. And finally, the league said, why don't we take all four of them? Now, the price to get in was 32.5 million. Time out. Repeat that again. 32.5. 32.5. Right. Which and value we, today? Well, listen, teams yeah. are selling now for $2 billion. Yeah. Anyway, Rick, at 32.5, we really felt uh, they had taken advantage of us. Initially, the talk was, eh, it's going to be maybe around $25 million. But 32.5, we, 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 we were gagged. But finally, each city came up with it, and uh, and they took all four of us. Yeah. Miami and Charlotte were to start in the fall of 88, right. uh, Maya- Orlando and Minnesota the fall of 89, and uh, we paid our entry fees, uh, multiply 32.5 times four, Rick, and then spread that out among 22 owners. Uh, big, big payday for them Right. back in that era. Back in that era, and a big deal for you, and truth be told, it was interesting because I was part of that group that dealt with the heat. And you were the reason why people should take Orlando seriously. Nobody knew the Hewitt family. Minnesota has its own and Charlotte had its own assets as well. And South Florida, clearly sun and fun and sports and transplanted New Yorkers and all. But don't underestimate Orlando because it has Pat Williams. Uh, <laughs> well, Rick, we uh, we worked hard and we got this community fired up. I think one of the things that w- was was huge for us were the deposits, yeah. $100 deposits on 14,000 season tickets. Uh, that was unheard of, but our community really stepped up and did that. Uh, I think that was a huge eye-opener to the league that something was pretty uh, rabid here. Yeah. And as it turns out, it was. 
you know, those early years with our franchise where we were playing to sell out crowds and, you know, hysterical fans. And it was really a beautiful story. So this was the time, and, and you, of course, were around. Your best general manager move was getting the lottery pick and drafting Shaq, right? So were you, was that the the heated ping pong ball you got David uh, Stern to do or the heated envelope? Which, which, how did that all work? Well, Rick, actually, <laughs> for two straight years, 92 and 93, uh, the, the lottery then was understandable. Today it's not. No, it's not. But it was really a matter of ping pong balls. Uh, there were 66 of them in the machine. Uh, based on your, your the worst record, you had the most balls. 1992, darn if our ball doesn't pop up. And we won it. And everybody was absolutely ecstatic for us, including the commissioner. Yep. Great break for this expansion team. There was Shaq. The next year, we missed the playoffs by the fifth tiebreaker and ended up in the lottery. We had one out of 66 ping pong balls in that machine. And amazingly enough, guess what happened? Our ball popped up again. A brilliant general manager move, by the way. Well, that, brilliant, brilliant. Let me tell you this, Rick. <laughs> nobody was happy for us that, that yeah, year, yeah. including the commissioner. Right. I mean, David Stern, that was not the way it was designed. Anyway, that led to all the wheeling and dealing on draft night, and that's how Penny Hardaway got here. So we had this wonderful young nucleus of Shaq and Penny, both 20 years old. Uh, we had Dennis Scott here already. We had Nick Anderson. Uh, we had a nice young team and we had a, a great run and then uh, in 1996 it all unraveled Shaq as a free agent went to LA mm -hmm. Penny uh, had both knees go out on him over a period of time and suddenly we were uh, scrambling all over again yeah well but that's but you know you recover and that's part of your life Nine, 83 Sixers 2018 today, biggest difference between the NBA then and now? Oh, Rick, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is the internationalization yeah. of the game. Uh, the NBA is, is being watched in every nation on earth. Uh, people are watching games in China and in India and in Japan, everywhere. Uh, secondly, the players that are coming from all these nations. Uh, this year, for example, uh, there are a hundred players from other countries. I think 41 countries are represented with players on rosters in the league this year. That's astounding. Yeah. And I guess the third thing, Rick, is uh, just the enormous value of these franchises. They tell me that every franchise in the league is worth a billion dollars. Yeah. And when you see teams sold for two billion, and uh, you think about what are the Lakers worth? What are the Knicks worth, for example? It would be really good if, the, if either of those teams were any good. Oh, I'll think about that for a <laughs> yeah, minute. Yeah. So uh, uh, we, we've got a league, we've got a sport that has really found its stride and has become a worldwide endeavor. And uh, I guess the best way to put it in simple terms, the NBA now is a big deal. Big deal. But it's also a bigger deal as a platform for doing great by doing good and philanthropy, which, of course, is very important to you. So first, talk a little bit about some of the Magic Community Initiatives. Well, the Orlando Magic Youth Foundation, Rick, was founded right at the very beginning of our existence. And we wanted to be good citizens. We wanted to have an impact in the community, particularly with young people. And so uh, through different fundraisers, uh, a, a gala event, yeah. golf tournaments, etc. 
uh, we've been we have raised a lot of money, given away close to twenty million dollars over a period of about fifteen to sixteen years. All of it to youth-oriented organizations in Central Florida. Uh, it, it's a pretty tight uh, regimen, you know, what right. we do. But we've we've given that money, continue to do that, continue to raise those kind of funds. Yes, we want to be good citizens. But I think it's true, Rick, of all the teams in their communities. I'm really impressed with how NBA franchises have really made an effort uh, to be more than just good citizens, but, you know, con consistent in their, their work and their outreach uh, to make a difference in the lives of people that need help. Yes, but it starts at the top with the co-founder and your commitment to excellence via philanthropy. Personally, 19 kids... Uh, 14 adopted from different countries. Uh, what have you learned from them other than <laughs> you don't have enough time in life to do all this, but, and, and how, does it, how does it make you a better person? Well, that's a great question, Rick. We, uh, fortunately, the kids are all grown now. Uh, the youngest is 32. Uh, the oldest is 46. And uh, they're all out of the house, all out on their own. Uh, we have 18 grandchildren. Uh, which has been another interesting step for us. Uh, what have I learned about parenting? Uh, many things, but uh, you've got to have an equal balance of love and discipline. I have learned that. Secondly, your children need your time. Yeah. Uh, you've got to organize your schedule. And above every, anything I remember is this, Rick, uh, every morning at breakfast, Dad, are you going to be at our swimming meet today? Dad, are you going to be at our game tonight? Dad, are you going to be at my cheerleading? Uh, that was the most important thing to them, that I be there watching them in their events. I still remember that to this day, and they do too. Uh, what else can I tell you? Take them to church. Get them involved in Sunday school. And every Sunday, we loaded them up into that 18-passenger van and hiked them off to church. Uh, and one other thing quickly, Rick, is, yeah. is encourage them to be readers. You know, read to your children yeah. and uh, get them excited about books, good books, and uh, let them see that you are reading. I don't think there's any really substitute for a young person who loves to read. But also good things happen to good people. In 2011, you were diagnosed, which reportedly was in, with an incurable form of cancer. Uh, yet after a few rounds of chemo, it was not detected. Um, what kind of reaction did you get from your peers? How did you get through it? And, uh, and what did you take away from all of that? Well, Rick, that's true. In January of 11, I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is one of the blood cancers. Right. And Dr. Reynolds informed me that, hey, you know, this is a two or three year life expectancy. But he said, we're gonna get you on these forms of chemo immediately. He said, there are good new drugs coming all the time. Uh, we wanna keep you alive long enough uh, to get you on these new medications. All of that has happened, by the way. And they have gotten me on these new forms of chemo, most of them oral, and I'm doing well. I feel good. Uh, I'm able to keep my full schedule, and I'm pleased about that. Uh, what, what have I learned? Well, I scream and cry out, Rick, to men everywhere. Yeah. Do not neglect your yearly physical. Yeah. That's how they found out with me. And, and so many men, Rick, I've learned, ah, I don't need to yeah, do that. Right. Oh, I don't like yeah. doctors. Eh, I'll take my chances. Not good thinking. 
yeah. get the yearly physical. And if there is something wrong, they'll find it. Oh. And and the earlier they find something, the sooner they can get on it. So uh, obviously, words to live by. Um, the other side of Pat Williams, there are many sides, and we don't have enough time to cover all the sides, but they're all good sides. Uh, Fifty plus marathons, uh, Mount Rainier, uh, other mountain climbing. Um, What's the impact on your life of those endeavors? And again, how, how does that how does that make you a more well-rounded person as well? Well, Rick, I've always wanted to challenge myself, and I did run a half marathon here. Oh, I think I was in my mid fifties, and I finished it. And I thought, boy, it's a pretty big deal. I didn't think I could do that. And right after that, I signed up and said, I wonder if I could do a full marathon. I signed up for the Disney marathon. And, uh, and did it and finished. I was in tears when I crossed the finish line. Uh, that was the hardest thing I'd ever taken yeah. on. And so I kept doing it and en- ended up running 58 of them, including the Boston Marathon 13 times, just to prove to myself that I could do something hard. Yeah, well, and, you, uh, you, but you ha- and you haven't done anything in your life, so I'm trying to figure out uh, why, why, but why you days, ended up doing that. Those days are over. My, I ran my 58th, Rick, and the next week I was diagnosed with cancer. So that, that pretty much put an end to that for yeah, me. Well, but not the spirit. So I guess the final issue I want to pursue is you have such an incredibly well-rounded career and have been a mentor to so many people, including me. The power of sports generally. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What do you think is the most pervasive and important element of the power of sports and why sports has such uh, an obvious impact in being able to change people's lives? Well, Rick, all I can tell you is this. We live in a sports crazy nation. Uh, Everything seems to uh, revolve around high school or college or pro sports. Um, And I think it's important to remember that the athlete, the coach, uh, the executive, the broadcaster, has an enormous platform of influence in our country. And, the, and we all need to take that very seriously, that the words we speak, our actions, the way we conduct our lives, is impacting millions of people. Now that's the power of athletics. And so I think it's important for athletes and coaches to, to be careful about how, what they say, how they say it, I know we live in a very competitive business, but by the same token, there are millions of eyes watching us, and it's therefore important to be good role models. I think that's more than anything what I've taken from sports in my career in sports. You're a good friend, and it's an honor to be with you. Thank you, Pat Hey, Rick, so good to see you. Thanks for coming up. Thank you. Let's now see the Sports in Tech Minute. Well, first of all, Overwatch League commissioner leaving for Fortnite company Epic Games. Nate Nanzer leaving Overwatch to try to create a competitive esports initiative for Epic Games Fortnite. Fortnite been released for nearly two years. Free game amassed a high number of players, yet not grown to substantial esports initiative. And the key to Nanzer's arrival will be making the game's competitive scene grow so it can reel in professional gamers and sustain interest in the game. In the long run, Nanzer, the driving force behind the innovative and ambitious Owl, which became one of the 
esports uh, league's foremost events as it mimicked traditional sports with teams in cities around the world. With Fortnite's recent collaboration with the Jordan brand, there's been a revival and talk around a game, making it a good time for Nanzer to set up what could quickly become a competitive esports giant. And of course, we couldn't ignore the French Open this week. It's now delivered via HK on a 5G network. And for the first time at a Grand Slam tournament, national broadcaster France Televisions has implemented HK8K cameras at Roland Garros, leveraging the French telecommunications company Orange's new 5G network recently installed at the facility. According to SportsPro, Orange and the French Federation of Tennis also including uh, mixed uh, animations for the first time via a news headset and adding to the tournament's augmented reality. Now, in its 18th year with the tournament, Orange launched an artificial intelligence-driven virtual assistant for the use of fans at the French Open, while the tournament's first Chinese smartphone partner Oppo enhances the collaboration with the 5G network. 5G allows for crystal clear imaging and the 8K imaging provides a picture that can be displayed on screens like Oppo smartphones and the tournament is showcasing the entire cycle of what 5G can bring to sports in the near future. And that's the Sports Tech Minute. Finally, the Power of Sports Minute, certainly big this week. Jeopardy champion at Pro Sports Better starts donating his winnings to charity. 31 wins in his column so far. Jeopardy champion at Pro Sports Better James Holshauser has started donating his winnings to charity, and CNN says the 35-year-old professional gambler from Vegas recently became the second Jeopardy contestant ever to hit the $2 million in winnings. With his total of now $2.3 million in 31 days, he's closing in on Ken Jennings' record haul of $2.5 million. But earlier this month, Holshauser and his wife gave 10000 to Project 150, a charity that helps homeless students in Vegas by distributing school supplies, meals, and clothes. Ten grand to the Natural History Museum, and the couple's most recent donation is ten grand towards an educational charity called Communication Communities in Schools in Nevada. And through all of his Jeopardy! success, Holshauser has become one of Vegas' most celebrated citizens, receiving a key to the Strip and having Clark County officials declare May 2nd James Holshauser's Day. How about another celebrity? Tiger Woods loses a charity poker event to NBA superstar Russell Westbrook, and for more than two decades, the 43-year-old has been hosting his annual Tiger Jam, a poker tournament that's been a staple on the Vegas charity Strip an event itself, again last week. And according to The Loop, a number of auction items has raised a hefty sum for Woods's TGR Foundation, which aims to offer underserved children STEM curricula and the skills to survive in school and beyond. And one of the auction items stood out as Dave Gilbert, founder and CEO of National Funding, bid 75000 to caddy for Woods during a pro-am later this year. And although Woods is back in the green golfing, his Tiger Jam brought stars like Westbrook together for a poker game while he continued to refine his image, again giving back to charity, and that's the Power of Sports Minute. Big week this week with all the playoffs, next week even bigger with French Open finishing and the U.S. Open golf starting. Sports professor Rick Harrow wishing you a good week and join us next week when we continue to keep score. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek. 
Tanner Simpkins, for Reuters Digital. I'm Ricaro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.